At Marshalls, our buyers hustle to get you great deals on great gifts. Cashmere sweater, nice. You'll get brand name quality gifts for everyone on your list and yourself too. Hello, designer fragrance. More brands, more quality, more gifts for less. At Marshalls, gift the good stuff. podcast that is all about movies either starring by or about pop stars no the podcast runs such a broad gamut of musical and cinematic genres from documentaries to science fiction from country and western to hip-hop i'm your host graham williamson i write for thegeekshow.co.uk and horrified the british horror website as well as doing some work for second run dvd and i've been joined this week by Hello. Uh, most of you will probably know me as Prob, producer Rob. Uh, I am a resident here on the Geek Show um, and uh, one of the uh, founders of the channel, podcast, network, whatever. Um, I uh, have uh, upon times been a media critic and reviewer of various, various things like video games and cartoons and all sorts of things like that. Now I am a pottering old man who uh, lives, who relives the glory days while I sit on my posh and tell people to get off my lawn. Yeah, that's basically it. Yeah. Also, you're on Impossible Mission quite a bit, aren't you? <laughs> exactly. Yes, I'm on Impossible. The reason why it's called Impossible Mission, just to clarify for people, yeah, mm-hmm. is because these days it's impossible to talk about video games without pissing someone off. Indeed, yes. It's also the name of a game. <laughs> but yes, today we are here to talk about a film that was described by Roger Ebert as wildly different characters with one thing in common. Their pasts keep them imprisoned and shut them off from happiness in the present. Woo! Rock and roll party time, everyone! Uh, such grave subject matter might be quite surprising in a film starring beloved proto-punk survivor Joan Jett, but it is very normal for writer-director Paul Schrader, who was given many comic talents, serious acting challenges from Richard Pryor in his debut Blue Collar, through to Tiffany Haddish in his upcoming film The Card Counter. This time he's working with Michael J. Fox, fresh off the back of Back to the Future. Too many backs there, yeah. Um, And the film is 1987's Light of Day. Which, um... Yeah, I remember watching this when it first came out in the UK. And it was on, as you said, on the back of Back to the Future. And we were all like, uh, ooh, Michael J. Fox, he's in another movie. Because he was still, he was still the fresh faced boy next door type character who we all really liked. You know, um, I can't remember, was this before or after Teen Wolf? Oh, I think it was, I think after. I'm trying to remember, because, um, I feel like Teen Wolf is 85, 86. Yeah, Teen, Teen Wolf was before this as well. Because, um, was it, uh, there was Back to the Future, Teen Wolf, Class of 1984, 
which was that uh, weird action thriller film. Yeah, I completely uh, forgot about Class of 1984, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and, then, uh, and then Light of Day. And what a year 1987 was, because Light of Day uh, also, well, Light of Day was, uh, I think, first. And then the second film that came out in 1987 for him is one of my favourite Michael J. Fox films, The Secret of My Success. I was going to say it was A Secret of My Success, because that was adapted from a Jay McKinney novel at a time when Jay McKinney mm. was one of several people jockeying to be the bad boy of American literature. And yeah. that was a very different role, wasn't it? It was. And uh, I don't know what it is about The Secret of My Success. I think it's my, um, I think it's my love of just, the patently ridiculous nature of how things can progress from one to another and just snowball totally wildly out of control. Yeah, yeah, that might be it. And I, I have a soft spot for that kind of old Hollywood system way of making films where it's like, well, we've got a star and they do yeah. one thing, but can we try them out? Can we see if they can do other things? And even when yeah. it fails, it's always interesting, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, also, I have to say, um, Secret of My Success also, to this date, has made the best use of one particular track. Oh? Um, I can't remember what it's called. Uh, I think it was by the band Yellow. Uh, it's oh, yeah. It's, it's made the best use of that particular song in any film I've seen so far. It's the bit where they're... Uh, they're all at kind of the, um, the, the, there's been like this corporate gathering at the house at the retreat. And we, we'll get to light of day in a second. Don't worry. <laughs> but we're going by way of secret of my success. But uh, there's that corporate retreat and everyone's been invited and uh, they're all trying to, uh, right. So um, Michael J. Fox is trying to sneak into his girlfriend's bed. His aunt is trying to sneak into his bed. Her husband is trying to sneak into Michael J. Fox's girlfriend's bed. And they're all kind of, it's this weird thing where they're all creeping around the house and all just that, oh, yeah, it's just off the top of it. You know, Todd in the Shadows did a one-hit Wonderland episode about Yellow once, and the comments beneath that YouTube video are just thousands upon thousands of people just going, hang on, that's a real song. I thought it was just a meme or something. Yeah, exactly. It was a meme before there were memes. Oh, yeah, it's incredible. Do you know? Do you know what my first introduction to Yellow was? Because I wasn't really into uh, that sort of music until I watched an anime movie from back in the day called Space Adventure Cobra, and Yellow did the did like the soundtrack to it. Right, and I loved the soundtrack, and so I started exploring Yellow's music from there. <laughs> but yeah, as you mentioned, Light of Day is a very different musical genre, and yeah. I mean, for all, Joan Jett is the pop star in it. I wouldn't say it is necessarily a film for Joan Jett fans. Yeah. Um, I mean, her presence in it is... I wouldn't say that she's at the forefront of the entire film because most of the film tends to focus on Michael J. Fox. So she's more of a supporting character. But weirdly enough, I think that works better during the first two-thirds of the film, until you get to, like, the final third of the film. For the first two-thirds of the film, I think it works better that she is more of a supporting character to Michael J. Fox. 
um, because I I don't know. I think it's to do. I think part of it has to do with that weird brother sister dynamic that they had going on. Um, and it was nice to see kind of the younger brother start to take more, start to assert himself more and more. But then it was nice in the final third to see, you know, John Jett actually do some acting. Some yeah. Acting. Uh, and I think it's a genuinely good performance. I mean, she has not done much acting since, which I can mm. only ascribe to the fact that this film didn't make much money because it's certainly not down to the quality of her performance. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, the title track is the first thing you hear when you go into the film. Yeah. And that title track, we should talk about that a bit because that's uh, written by Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. Are you aware of Bruce Springsteen's slightly odd history with this script? Um, I'm not, actually. So this is going to be an adventure for me, because I am a huge Springsteen fan. Back in the early 80s, Schrader wrote the first draft of this screenplay. Um, yeah. And back then, it was about two brothers, which he decided was over-familiar. He thought he'd done it before in his script for Raging Bull, most obviously. Um so he decided to make it a brother and sister. But when it was two brothers, Bruce Springsteen was attached to it and he was going to play the brother uh, who eventually, you know, was changed into the Joan Jett character. Now, back then, the film had a different title. Back then, and remember, this is the very early 80s, the film was called Born in the USA. Ooh. And Paul Schrader, when he was out in a record store one day, spotted a new Bruce Springsteen album with that title. Uh, he noticed that he was thanked in the credits and he called Bruce and asked him about that. And Springsteen said, yeah, I'm, I'm really sorry about that, but we were just absolutely stuck for a title and I couldn't think of anything else that worked. Uh, so he said, uh, as an apology for jacking his title, he would either allow Schrader the opportunity to use Born in the USA, the song, in light of day for free, or he would write a special song solely for the movie, and Schrader chose the latter option, and that's where the song Light of Day comes from. See, I quite like Light of Day as a song. I quite like it in terms of the lyrics, in terms of uh, the meaning to the song, um, but I didn't know it had that history. Yeah, yeah. And... Uh, I mean, it would have been nice to see Springsteen acting. Because you know? he, he never has, has he? And I'm not no, like uh, a Springsteen expert. I don't know if I'm missing anything. I will say, though, that does explain a couple of things in the film that felt weirdly idiosyncratic to me, right? Um, and, you, you know, there's the bit about the tools being stolen, for example. Mm, mm. That felt a bit weird to me. Uh, and now that you explain it, that Bruce Springsteen, it was supposed to be about two brothers, it makes a bit more sense about tools being stolen and stuff like that. Do you see what I mean? Because there were certain bits of the film where it felt more like the, uh, you know, the the character opposite Michael uh, J. Fox was supposed to be a guy. Well, this gets you into one of the big constants of Joan Jett's career in the she has never expressly said that she's gay, but she has said, I mean, she, she's basically done interviews where she said, oh, come on, do I need to clarify that for you? Yeah. 
and that's one of the sort of weird unpulled threads in light of day i think that so much of it revolves around the sibling's mother the gina roland's character disapproving yeah. of the lifestyle they've taken on as they've you know left the home and gone into the big city but that is explored solely through the prism of her disapproving of rock and roll music the fact yeah. that her daughter really seems quite butch just never comes up no one ever talks about no. that but then again that was also a reflection of the times as well um the 1980s was definitely a time where you didn't i mean uh what was it the u.s military had that policy of don't ask don't tell that that, that was know. even that was the 90s you know that, that yeah. was a move forward it was even worse in the 80s yeah i know uh in the 80s you literally did not talk about it you didn't acknowledge it you uh you know if somebody called you it you basically just brushed it off with uh, all sorts of bluster as you know uh, as if you, as if you weren't even if you were yeah and it was it was a horrible time completely that yeah was mixed in with all sorts of that was mixed in with all sorts of other underlying factors I and mean, uh, racism was massively rife in the mm. 80s um I mean, one of the things I did like about Light of Day was uh, that because I watched it when I was a kid, when it came out, it was a throwback for me. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I love going back to the 80s, because it was my childhood. Yeah. You know? And uh, it reminded me of, I mean, after I watched Light of Day, do you know what I did? What? I went back and watched The Secret of My Success, and then I watched Teen Wolf, <laughs> and then I watched Doc Hollywood. Went into a Michael J. Fox pit for a while. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's not a bad pit to be in. I'll give it that. Yeah, yeah. No, I've. Uh, we should probably talk about a bit about our uh, feelings towards Fox because I, I am slightly obsessed with generational differences as a way of yeah. understanding culture, and I am slightly younger than you, which means that. I was not the right age to watch something like Back to the Future when I was a kid. Yeah. Like I, I was in nappies when that came out. So I haven't had that really close connection to him as a screen presence. He's not someone I remember as being totemic to me growing up. By yeah. the time I was really into film and TV, he was doing... What was that sitcom he did? Was it Spin City? Uh, yeah, Spin City was the one where he was in like the mayor's office or something. That's it. Yeah, yeah. That was that was probably the first time I saw him. I have, of course, gone back and watched Back to the Future, and I like those movies tremendously these days. But it's not my childhood in the same way. See, for me, it was different because I because with us growing up during the eighties, um, we did get some American TV, for example, and so I had watched him in Family Ties. Oh right! Before uh, you know, because that was the big that was the big uh, kind of uh, drama sitcom type thing that he was in. Um, I think it ran for about five years or something like that. And uh, so I'd watched him in that a few times beforehand. So I was aware of Michael J. Fox as a person I'd seen on TV. And then Back to the Future came out. I was like, oh, it's that guy of Family Ties. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, he changed from being that guy of family ties to being Marty McFly. 
Which, yeah, is kind of an interesting thing to be heaving around because there are parts of this movie, particularly the parts where he's yeah. on stage and playing the guitar, where you just expect him to turn to the audience at the end and go, well, that might not be your thing now, but your kids are going to love it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and when he starts playing the guitar, I, all I kept he- all I kept expecting to hear in light of day, uh, and this wasn't then when I watch it. This is now when I watch it. All I keep hearing, I keep hearing in my head when he picks up the guitar is absolutely. I wish they they could have linked into it. They could have had like a guy in the bar pick up the phone, go, "Hey, Bruce, it's your cousin Marvin Springsteen." Yes. Uh thing is, um, I think if they did that, they would have ruined the tone of the film. I don't think it would have fit tremendously well, it's <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I would have loved to have seen something like that. Or just Bruce Springsteen in the in the bar with a beer, ju- just basically raising a, raising a beer to them at the end or something like that. Because, you know, there were cameos in this. There were cameos. We have to talk about one in particular because there is there is a band in it. Uh, I forget what the band is called. I'm sure I've got it noted down somewhere. The possible the pos- the problems that was it. I think the line was they started off as sins, but now they're just problems. <laughs> yes, that's a great line. There's always yeah. at least a couple of great lines in a Paul Schrader film. I think. Yeah. Um. But yeah, they are like uh. A sort of they're a synth pop band, but they're not a synth pop band in the sort of Duran Duran mold. They're back in the kind of devil era where synth pop was still a bit quirky, a bit more underground. And their lead singer too was doing that thing that David Byrne does in the Once in a Lifetime video, where you lean back and then you go up to the microphone and you do it again and again. Yeah. And who was their keyboard player, Rob? Well, the the keyboard player is well. He's better known for most people now know him better because of a song that Johnny Cash sang for you know that was featured on the trailer of the film Logan, which is Hurt, which was originally a Nine Inch Nails song written by Trent Reznor, who is the keyboard player from the band The Possibles in the film Light of Day, and the first thing I thought to Back when I first watched Light of Day, didn't know who the hell he was, didn't care. Now I go back and watch it, I'm like, that guy looks familiar. And then I check the credits, I'm like, oh my god, it's Trent Reznor? What? What's going on here? And then I paused and went, I wonder if this affected his future career. I just, again, when we're talking about putting these little Easter eggs in about the future of music, I just wanted there to be a cutscene where the keyboard player in the problems goes, all right, uh, I've got a song for you. I don't know if it works, but just uh, just check it out, see what you think. I want to fuck you like an animal. <laughs> do, you know the, do you know the weird thing, right? You had... Um... Some other uh, some other musicians in there. The Fabulous Thunderbirds that they saw on TV are an actual band. They're oh, an actual American blues rock band, by the way. I didn't uh, know they, that. Yeah, they were formed in 1974. Um, in uh, one of the songs that was performed uh, has, uh, I think it's called Cleveland Rocks um, by Ian Hunter. And that is, he's an actual singer as well, singer-songwriter. 
that's Ian Hunter from Mot the Hoople. I think it's that Ian Hunter, yeah, from Mot right, the Hoople. Right. Yeah, Mot the Hoople, yeah. Oh, right. And uh, Dave Edmonds, who's a Welsh singer songwriter, and uh, he was uh, pretty, pro- you know, he had uh, a few hits during the 70s and 80s as well. I nearly met Dave Edmonds really? once. Really? Yeah, I was outside his house and I think he heard me knocking, but I couldn't come in. <laughs> oh, that was, oh, oh, where's that, where's that guitar riff that he usually plays about now? <laughs> I don't think that's a no, guitar, guitar riff joke. Riff. I think that's that like drum, a sad that, trombone that drum, that drum joke. Thing. Oh God, yeah, sad trombone. <laughs> what was that Lurpak guy called again? Douglas Lurpak. Where are you, Douglas? <laughs> yes. How many times have we referenced Douglas Lurpak on a podcast? It's got to be higher than the average podcast, right? You don't get this on Behind the Bastards. Oh, God, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, but Douglas Lurpak was one of the greatest advertising creations. And I used to work in advertising, so trust me, I know. <laughs> Douglas Lurpak was a moment of genius. There are a few moments of genius in uh, in advertising. One of the most one of the most cited ones because it's an advert that can literally be translated into any language. Is you remember the uh, there was a, a company called Anderson Consulting and they had an advert where it was just basically a bunch uh, a, sw- a shoal of fish swimming around and then you see a shark. Yeah. And then the shoal of fish swimming around and it's, it's a bit of a jaws moment. You think, oh, the fish are going to get eaten. But then the fish swim together and form a bigger shark. Oh, yeah. And the shark swims away. Yeah. And that advert is genius because it, it, it could literally go into any language. All it needs is uh, narration in a different language because at the end it just says Anderson Consulting. And that's it. And that is a moment of genius. And the Lurpak one, Douglas Lurpak, is also a moment of genius and Lurpak really should bring him back. Because... Absolutely, yeah, because that's Adman <laughs> animations too. You know, you got they went for the yeah. best of the best to create that character. Yeah. Oh god, yeah. And Douglas was just amazing. Just the secret trombone, trombone playing all the time. <laughs> all the trombones, all the time. Join us next week on Lurpak Screen as we. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh... But anyway, uh, going back to Light of Day with its guitars and drums and lack of trombones, but with a lot of Trent Reznor at a certain point. Um, yeah, it was weird. Um, I, 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 I honestly, I, I, I watch it and I think this, this is just the most bizarre cameo. The only thing, the only cameo in the eighties that could be more bizarre than Trent Reznor is actual cameo appearing with his big red codpiece. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and it's funny too because Trent Reznor went on to have such an association with cinema to the extent that at the recent Oscars, the Oscars just gone, the big competition yeah. in the best original score was: is Trent Reznor going to win for Mank or is Trent Reznor going to win for Soul? And you know, it's it's yeah. amazing that it started out here with this one cameo where you can only just see his face as a keyboardist in a <laughs> sort of cheesy synth pop band. That was a yeah. That that was that was a strange moment for me in this film. Completely, yeah. I mean, I suppose we've got to talk about the actual story. <laughs> 
Eventually, yeah. And it's <laughs> it's kind of an odd story because Schrader used to be a film critic himself, which means that annoyingly he is better at analysing the problems that his films have than you or I will ever be. Yeah. Um, but he, he says something about... Um, yeah, in, in Schrader on Schrader, very fine book, uh, edited by Kevin Jackson, he says that, that there's just a mix of different things in it. It's an attempt to go back to the kind of working class subject matter of Blue Collar, which is a great, great movie. Um, but it's also his rock and roll film. You know, it's the only film that he'd made at that point. I think the only film he'd made full stop about rock and roll He'd had a few near misses. He was attached to a biopic of Hank Williams for a long time. So this was his chance to do that. But he also wanted to make a film about his relationship with his mother. And if you know anything about Paul Schrader, you know that he came from this really ferociously religious family. So religious that when he went to the premiere of Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ, which he wrote the screenplay for he went outside and saw the protesters outside and one of them was his own dad. Yeah. Um, uh, that, I remember the, uh, I remember reading about the, uh, the protests for the last temptation uh, of Christ where years ago. And I always found it weird, but I understood, kind of understood it, but I didn't know Paul Schrader wrote the screenplay and I didn't know his dad was one of the protesters. Yes. That's, <laughs> That's a that's a new level of wow. That's that, that's a pretty dysfunctional parent and child relationship. I think I, I can get yeah. not being super encouraging, but to actually say that your son's work should be banned is. I mean that that's on the level of. Do you remember Waterboy? The the Adam Sandler film. Yeah. Uh, do you remember his mom? I can't remember who plays his mom, but she keeps saying everything is of the devil. Right. That's that kind of level, isn't it? Your screenplay is of the devil. This film is of the devil. Well, there's a chilling story that Schrader tells because his his family were Dutch Calvinists, um, who I guess are people who saw standard Calvinism and thought that's good, but it's it's a bit too much fun, isn't it? Um, well, is it was there too much Hobbs in it or something? <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand. What is what the hell? Okay, you're gonna to have to explain something to me first. Okay, okay. What the hell is a Calvinist? Because as soon as you said Dutch Calvinist, I'm thinking Calvin and Hobbes is a religion. What's going on? You're closer than you think. Calvin was oh. named after the founder of Calvinism. That Bill Watson is a, a big sort of fan of philosophy and theology. And so he named Calvin and Hobbes after philosophers with separate worldviews. Uh, but I have to say, what I have heard of Calvinism does not make it sound tremendously similar to the sort of live-in-the-moment philosophy of Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes. And I'm going to see if I can find some of Schrader's own quotes about this, because I think it will be fairer listening to him is Calvinism kind of on the same level as L. Ron Hubbard's, uh, you know, million-dollar creation? Calvinism is actually a branch of Christianity, but it is very, very strict. And there's a quote that... Okay, I don't remember a, a, an apostle called Calvin. 
I think I would remember if there was an apostle called Calvin. <laughs> well, that's I want to back... call foul on this. <laughs> that's in the Back to the Future version of the New Testament, <laughs> isn't it? So it's like, <laughs> hey, Paul, it's your brother Calvin. Calvin of Amarathia. <laughs> I've got this great new preacher you're going to love. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we're going to hell. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, I can't find the exact quote, but he says that um, his mother, he, he once asked his mother, and the Gene of Oldham's character in this movie is based very closely on Schrader's own mother. He asked his mother what hell felt like, and she picked up a pin and jabbed it into the end of his finger and said, it's like that, but it never stops. Hmm, well, that's a uh, healthy mother-son relationship right there. Yes. Um, sometimes all you can do is suck your teeth, uh, which is what I literally just did. I think that, I should say, I think there are more liberal denominations of Calvinism, but Dutch Calvinism is really not it. And one of the things that Schrader says, it, it kind of differentiates him from other directors, particularly other directors in that generation who came up in the 1970s you know the spielbergs the scorseses the Coppolas, is that unlike them he does not have childhood memories of movies because he was not allowed to watch films so that kind of movie brat sensibility where you know spielberg always goes back to the well of being enchanted by cinema as a child is just not open at all to schrader Okay, that may, that actually explains a bit about, about this film. Uh, explains a bit about uh, his other films as well. Um, but this one, in, I mean, what films had Paul Schrader done before Light of Day? Well, he just he'd done a number of interesting things. He'd done uh, Blue Collar and American Gigolo. But I think that the things that are most interesting to this, he'd just come off the back of Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters. Yes. Which is a masterpiece, I think. It might just be his greatest film. Yeah. Uh, but that's that's very different. I suppose it is also about someone in a very restrictive uh, ideological system who cannot break out of it. Um, yeah. But very early on in his career, he'd also done a film with George C. Scott called Hardcore. Hardcore? That rings a bell. It's a very dark movie. It's like and part of the reason why I bring it up here is that George C. Scott's character is based on his father as much as Gene of Oland's character in Light of Day is based on his mother. Yeah. Uh, but George C. Scott plays someone from a very sheltered uh, religious community and his daughter has run away and she he, he hears a rumour that she's gone to New York and become a porn star and he ends up going on this very... Travis Bickle-ish journey through the underworld of New York in the 70s looking for her. Um, it's obviously more of a genre piece than Light of Days, but it is still rooted in that desire to do something about the worldview that his parents had. For some reason, I, uh, for some reason in my brain, there is a connection between Paul Schrader and Cats, and I can't remember why. 
Did he do a film about cats or somehow the, there was a cat in the title or something like he that? He did, yes. He, just after American Gigolo, he remade the classic Jacques Tourneur horror film Cat People uh, with Natasha Kinski and Malcolm ah, McDowell. That explains why I've got that weird connection because I was thinking, had Paul Schrader had nothing to do with the modern version of Cats? Although if he did... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it would be very working class. <laughs> <laughs> Blue-collar cats struggling with religious guilt as they try to ascend to the heavy side layer. No, no, no. Blue-collar cats struggling to remove the collars and be free, finally free. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be a good thing, wasn't it? You could do a film about working class cats and they could literally have blue collars. We're just giving exactly. away these golden ideas for free. This always happens when we meet. <laughs> it does. It does. <laughs> Um, so yeah, uh, <laughs> we, we will talk about the story at some point. <laughs> well, yeah, because uh, in in many ways it is a very simple story, but I think it, it is its problem is that it is kind of overloaded with themes that, like Schrader says, it is a film about like blue collar bar bands. It's one of the very few rock and roll films that isn't about hitting the yes. big time. It's just about well, working a crap job and playing in a band on nights as you release. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why I like it so much. Yeah. I, I, right. Um, in another life, I managed a few bands here and there on like local uh, scenes and circuits of that. You know, getting them gigs in pubs and various things like that. Um, and, you know, and so... For me, when I go back and watch Light of Day now, with the knowledge I have of local bands and you know, uh, going around doing the uh, doing the the pub scene and everything like that, so I'm going back and watching Light of Day, and I'm like, it hasn't really changed. The whole shtick hasn't changed from the from like then until now. It's still the same for jobbing bands. They have to go around. They have to do the pub thing. They have to do all these things in order to make it make themselves known. Or they did up until the rise of YouTube and stuff like that. Now it's very different ball game, but you know, uh, Light of Day is a little bit of nostalgia from when I was a kid for me, but also a little bit of nostalgia from that time in my life when I was dealing with bands. I think so, yeah. And there are very few films about bands where the central question is not are they going to become a success. I mean, the only other one that springs to mind is a film I absolutely worship, uh, uh, We Are the Best by Lucas Moodyson. Hmm. I don't think I know that one. Oh, it's great. Yeah, it's about a, a load of preteen girls in Sweden who decide to form a punk rock band just so they can get access to the local youth centre. And it's just a joy. It is the most fun. I don't know. Do you know, you just said that, and I, I don't know if you've seen the uh, trailer, the trailers for it on TV um, for um, a kind of a group of young Islamic girls in the UK who form a band and they call, uh, the series is called We Are Lady Parts. Yes, yeah, the Nita Mansour series. Yeah, I, I saw yeah. a bit of that on Thursday night, but I was so tired I couldn't watch the whole thing. But yeah, I enjoyed that. And it does have a very We Are The Best energy, you're right. Yeah, because um, when you said that, I, was, I, was, I immediately thought of that as like the nearest cousin to it kind of thing. So that's, um, uh, I guess that's kind of similar, isn't it? Because from what I saw of We Are Lady Parts, it's like, 
I guess it could end with them having a massive chart hit, but it doesn't feel like that's the goal. It doesn't feel like yeah. that's what the story is about. Um, the, the weird thing is, this film, uh, Light of Day, like uh, like uh, We Are Lady Paths, uh, from what we've seen of it so far, and this We Are The Best movie that you're talking about, uh, it feels like the story is more, more about that moment in time yeah. than anything else, and it's so focused on this specific set of circumstances and how these people deal with this specific set of circumstances rather than looking to the future and looking... And the film doesn't dwell on the past that much either. It doesn't dwell on what happened in the past. It doesn't really try and explain why, you know, um, the family has kind of fractured as it has. It just says, this is how it is now. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that I thought about it was that maybe it would have been a bigger hit if it had been more nostalgic, because around this yeah. time in the mid-80s, you have the first sort of really major wave of nostalgia for the 50s and for the early days of rock and roll. I mean, Back to the Future, obviously, is a big part yeah. of that happening. And you could have done a version of it that was kind of like Footloose, you know, where it has that nostalgic aspect and it has very clearly delineated goodies and baddies. And it's unironically about the power of rock and roll to, you know, beat religious fundamentalism. But I think the fact that for Schrader, this is about his parents and it's about his parents dying as well means mm. that he can't write that story he knows that it's more complex yeah. than that yeah um and you get kind of echoes of that in the film uh i wouldn't say it was like uh i wouldn't say the film was like really hitting you over the head with his internal messages um but they are there uh, once you know the backstory behind it you can see the echoes of it in the film um the most obvious one being what happens at the end um but um, even with all of that, um, the the weird thing the weird thing is, and I mentioned this right at the beginning of uh, us recording. Um, the first two thirds of the film feels like it's more focused on Michael Michael J. Fox, and the last third feels like it's very uh, is very much focused. I mean, she is kind of there in most of the shots yeah. and most of the scenes. It, it's focused very much on John Jett. Um, but I liked the way that it split the, uh, that uh, Schrader approached that, saying, look, this is the younger brother. He's always been in kind of his sister's shadow. Um, but now he's coming to the fore, becoming his own person, finding his own road. And, you know, his sister is kind of making peace with things that are going, uh, things that have happened in the past. And I think one of the reasons why that works is because the Joan Jett character is more complex and just needs more time to settle in, whereas part of the beauty yeah. of Michael J. Fox's character is that you get who he is as soon as he walks on screen. You know, the first yeah. thing we see of him, he's in a factory making, and, and if you can think of anything more tackily 1980s, I'd love to hear it. He's making commemorative tea trays about the wedding of Prince Charles and Lady Diana. And as soon as you see that, you just think, yep, get it, got it. Yeah, exactly. And what I love is how, the, how, is how Schrader portrays the sequence of time through tea trays because at the beginning you see tea trays of Charles and Diana 
and then later on you have tea trays of uh, was it Fergie and Andrew? Oh, did I miss that? That's very good. Yeah, you missed that. Yeah, I, I, I loved the fact that he was telling time through tea trays. I thought that is genius. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is great. Yeah, that's very good. <laughs> But yeah, it was not a successful film. I don't think it's ever been released on DVD, although it's very easy to find floating around online. And I I would hope that the kind of resurgence that Schrader is having um, after his most recent film, First Reformed, which is a very, very dark film indeed. Yeah. Yeah. I would hope that inspired someone to put it out in a proper cared-for restoration because although it isn't perfect, although it isn't his best work, I think it deserves more. Well, I think uh, while it's not his best work, I think uh, uh, given the backstory and the history to it, I think it's his most personal up to that point. Yeah. Uh, up to that point in his life, I think it's his most, his most personal. I've got to say, um, I there were very few performances in the film that I mean there were a couple of stilted uh moments in scenes where you could see that uh you know the people the, the the actors in the scene maybe maybe it was John Jett's stardom at that point because she was you know she was a bigger name than most of the actors who were in the film except for like Gina Rollins. Um I think in terms of in order of uh, fame, I'd put Gina Rollins first, then John Jett second, and then everyone else came after that. Well, my, Michael J. Fox is in his sort of own realm at this point, isn't he? I mean... Yeah, it's just, in terms of stardom, I think it was, I think John Jett was kind of superseding him. Uh, maybe only just, but because uh, she was entering kind of the uh, uh, the latter days of her uh, of her career as a musician. She'd definitely been famous for longer, which I think carries yeah. its own weight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, there were very few performances in the film that actually felt like they were falling in. I thought Gene Rollins was great. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I thought, uh, I'll be honest, nobody really plays um, a Bible bashing mother like her. No, no. Like even Piper Laurie or someone yeah, can't exactly. quite match up. Yeah. Yeah, she she is fantastic, and she is also obviously a link back to uh, the John Cassavetes movies and the start of like naturalistic drama in American cinema, yeah. which is again good for a film that, when you look at it on paper, could be footloose. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, oh, who was it who played the dad? I've forgotten his name. Oh yeah, who is that guy? Let me just look that up. Um... Wasn't that um, Michael McKean or something? No, not Michael McKean. Um... Michael McKean is in it, um, and that is fascinating to me because it means that Michael McKean had gone from making one of the most cynical films about rock and roll to making one of the most earnest films about rock and roll within about three years. Jason Miller, that was it who played the dad, wasn't it? That's the guy, yeah. I can't remember what else he's been in. Wait, I'm I'm looking him up now because uh, his his face didn't ring a bell here. He was. Oh, I know who he is. I know who he is. Yeah, he was Father Damien, wasn't he? Yes, 
yes, he was. I was going to say primarily a playwright, but his acting career is most noted for Father Damien Karras in The Exorcist, which yes. is a movie that, yes. as you might expect, Paul Schrader really loves. Yeah, I mean, uh, that uh, I, was, I was thinking, I know... Uh, I, I know that face. I know that face. Um, and then doc, and then um, what was it? Thirteenth um, Doctor um, name. Jodie um, Whittaker. What his name? Thirteenth Doctor. Twelfth Doctor. Um, Peter Capaldi. Thirteen. Yeah, Peter Capaldi. Thirteen. He was thirteen, wasn't he? No, he was twelve. Whittaker's thirteen. Was he thirteen? Depends no, on how you count 12? John Hurt. I, get, I keep getting confused. Yeah. Uh, this is true. Are we counting John Hurt? I don't think you do. I think he renounced the title, so it goes eight, Paul McGann, John Hurt, nine, Christopher Eccleston. Right, okay, so he's the 12th Doctor then. Right, Capaldi. So Peter Capaldi. Uh, yeah, uh, so in my brain, quite literally, it was going, I know that face, and then who framed me that face? <laughs> 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 and then I went... Because <laughs> then you think... Father Damien, always frowning. See, it's great. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And it's it's one of the pleasures of watching those films that were kind of uh, based around the new Hollywood scene, even though this is after that scene ended, but Schrader was intimately linked with it. They always cast yeah. people who were surprising. They always cast people from outside the normal mainstream Hollywood talent pool. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I I th I thought he was pretty good as the dad. He didn't have a lot of lines. Yeah. Um, but again, it co it comes back to what I was saying. Nobody felt like they were phoning in performances. Some of them were a bit stilted, but nobody was actually phoning it in. Everybody felt actually re weirdly committed to the film. It's a very sincere film, and I, I think this is always yeah. kind of. Schrader's problem in that he cannot be anything other than sincere and sometimes as with first reformed he finds a subject that other people are very sincere about and you know he, he releases it in the middle of a sincere mm -hmm. age where people are very passionate about their causes but in the 80s yeah. it's like the high gloss Reagan decades is not really his natural yeah. habitat and a lot of his films just got yeah. buried under that. Yeah, I mean, uh, the 80s wasn't a good time for blue-collar workers. Not yeah. at all. The rise of capitalism. Yeah, the the rise of capitalism really, um, really kind of paved the way for the next two decades. Yeah. Uh, and really pushed that uh, rich-poor divide uh, to widen in ways that are only now being realised. Yes. Um, but, you know, um, and I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of these blue-collar films, especially the sincere ones, um, didn't get the recognition they deserved. Yeah. You know what I think is the best American film about the working classes released in the 1980s? What's that? They Live. That? Yes. Yes. Because the, th the thing that slays me about They Live is that for the first 20 minutes or so, it is an absolutely unironic John Steinbeck-style portrait of urban drifters. And I can imagine someone tuning in 
like late at night not knowing what it is and thinking that's exactly the film they're going to get until of course it all shifts but there is a core of sincerity in that film that is palpable yeah also has one of the best uh one of the best fists one of the best fist fights in cinema history inarguably yeah it's fantastic yeah Oh, is it eight minutes long or something like that? <laughs> it is, yeah. It just gets it gets really down and dirty. It's it, it's 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 wonderful. Yeah, I, <laughs> I love that movie. But on the issue of light of day, uh, do we have any final thoughts before we wrap it up? Um, there is a John Jett documentary which I would recommend watching alongside Light of Day. You were not the only person to recommend this to me. Mick, who was often on this podcast, has spoke very highly of this. Yes. I can't remember what it was called. It was called Bad Reputation, wasn't it? That was it, yeah, yeah. Um, The John Jett documentary, Bad Reputation, I would recommend watching that alongside Light of Day Um, because there are parallels between John Jett's character in Light of Day and John Jett's life in general. It was it was really nice to see John Jett actually being you know actually being given a role that she could actually sink her teeth into for a start completely um, even though it was in the final third of the film but um, it proved that she could act and I really wish she'd been given more roles you know um, before this after this it would have been great to see her uh, in I mean if you can give Madonna roles in films like Desperately Seeking Susan and uh, dick tracy and whatever else she was in you know john jett was a much better actress do you think that part of it is just a a sense of dignity that maybe she looked at this film and thought "Hmm, i poured my heart into that that didn't work ah well maybe it's not my deal because that is that is a line of thinking i can very easily imagine john jett having but i cannot imagine madonna having for one second uh yeah it probably is that (laughs) I'll be honest. Um, I've long been a fan of John Jett, and uh, I, you know, I, I respect her work as a musician, and I respect her, you know, and I, I really want to see more of her as an actress because I, I, I think that she, there's a, there's, there's a thing about John Jett when she's, uh, when she, when it comes to kind of her presence on screen or on stage or something like that. Um, there's a weird ethereal quality, um, which I think has to do with the actual bone structure of the face. She has a weird elfin quality to the face. Yeah, that's true, so isn't it? Would have been, yeah. For all her toughness, that been, you can see a kind of vulnerability yeah. behind her that is is an interesting characteristic to have for an actor. Yeah, yeah. It, that's why I would have loved to have seen her in more roles. Um, I think Light of Day really brought that out in quite a few ways. Maybe not in all the ways, but in quite a few ways. Uh, Michael J. Fox, um, this was definitely mullet stage Michael J. Fox. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think he rose to the challenge of doing a serious role quite well. Absolutely. Um, Light of Day is one of those films, yeah. Light of Day for me is one of those films where if you're, if you're interested in just um, jobbing bands, you know, um, just trying to... Just trying to vent some steam and just basically playing the music that they want to play and they don't really care about the film or anything like that. Kind of the perfect film for that. 
Yeah, and I think Michael J. Fox's only problem goes back to what we were just talking about with Joan Jett, that he just has this face that always looks really sweet and innocent, and he can't help that. But I think his the fact that he yeah. didn't quite break into grittier, tougher roles is nothing to do with his talent. It's just this accident of how he looks. Yeah, he's always looked like... He's always had that boyish charm. Even when he was in Scrubs and much older, right, yeah. he still had that weird boyish look about him. You just want to walk up to him and go, oh, he's such a cutie, and just, just squeeze, pinch his cheeks. <laughs> I've just had a thought. Yeah. There is a film alongside the the uh, alongside the Bad Reputation documentary. There is a film that can go alongside uh, Light of Day. Oh. The Commitments. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, because that is the ultimate example of the band film where it's not about them getting big, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And having like a double, having a triple bill of Bad Reputation, Light of Day and The Commitments, I think that's a, I think that's a good evening in, isn't it? That's pretty good. Yeah, I like that idea a lot. (laughs) Yes. Well, uh, we're aware that, listeners, you are probably going to rush off and do that right now, so we'll wrap up this episode of Pop Screen. Uh, If you enjoyed this, don't forget to give us a review on your podcast provider of choice because that helps more than you could imagine. Otherwise, please subscribe to our social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as TGS underscore The Geek Show. That's where you can find us on all of those platforms. But until next week, that's been your lot from Pop Screen. I've been Graham. And I've been Rob. And we'll see you next week. for those who need support and make a difference in your community. Earn a Bachelor of Social Work from Grand Canyon University. GCU is a premier private Christian university offering online social work programs with affordable tuition and personalized support. In addition, you can earn your Master of Social Work by completing the Bachelor of Social Work plus just one additional year instead of two. Find your purpose. Visit gcu.edu slash social work to learn more.